Ladies and gentlemen, welcome for the final time for this season to Bardflies, a podcast about reckoning with past mistakes, silly awards, and bittersweet farewells. This week, we bid a fond adieu to William Shakespeare and the first season of Bardflies. I'm James Smith. And I'm Will Quinn. This is the end. Die, Bard, with a vengeance. Will, it's been a long road to get to this point. Uh, I, th- I think we started this project at, what, the end of 2019? So uh, Yeah, I, th- I think we recorded our first episode sometime around then for release in early 2020, and then we recorded maybe our second episode in February, dare I say, of 2020, something like that. And then we discovered that we had a global pandemic that was just going to be the perfect time for us to... Uh, Really dig into the works of William Shakespeare. And here we are almost three years later with all of the plays by Shakespeare read with varying degrees of uh, intensity and closeness and very deserved. Held. So, some, yes. with, with also a varying degree of deserving to be read with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, for sure. However, we all uh, will obviously fight and defend our opinions on each of these plays to the last, even if we can barely remember the plot summaries of some of them. So, no doubt. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's sleep into it. So, for our listeners, today's episode really is just revisiting our rankings, talking about some big picture things, and really just a chance for us to reflect on the experience via the immortal task of power ranking. So, Will, I, I thought the best place to start with this, let's just walk through kind of, you know, wh- where things are landing on, on the lists here. So... I don't know if we need to read through every play, but I think definitely let's give our top tens and then maybe maybe we can call out a couple notable rankings for, for whatever reason. So just for me to start, my top ten are number one, Hamlet, number two, Henry the Fourth, Part One, number three, Othello, number four, Henry V, number five, Julius Caesar, number six, Macbeth, number seven, Richard the Third, number eight, Romeo and Juliet, number nine, Love's Labor's Lost, and number ten. The Merchant of Venice, and then my bottom five are Cymbeline, The Taming of the Shrew, Pericles, Prince of Tyre, Timon of Athens, and Edward III. And I will say one thing, Will, that just leaps out to me even as I look over those rankings. You know, for me, the top 10 is very heavy on tragedies and histories. Uh, you know, the Love's Labor's Lost and The Merchant of Venice sneak in there at 9 and 10 as, as the only two comedies in my top 10. I don't even know if we consider The Merchant of Venice a comedy in a certain way. So that I think is probably betraying a little bit of my, and dare I say also your genre preferences in general here. But um, those are sort of the broad strokes of my rankings. What, what do you got? So I think we'll have a fair amount of echoing in the top 10 on my part and also in the bottom five. I think our real trade space is, is in the middle. But yeah, I would agree. Tragedies and histories heavily represented. Comedies, not so much. So for me, number one was Hamlet. Number two was Macbeth. Three was Henry V. Four was Julius Caesar. Five, King Lear. Six, Othello. Seven, Henry IV, Part One. Eight, Richard III. Nine, Coriolanus. And ten, Romeo and Juliet. And then Merchant of Venice for me is just uh, just below that cutoff at 11. And then for the bottom five, <laughs> so uh, I had Cymbeline, 
Timon of Athens, two gentlemen of Verona, Pericles, Prince of Tyre, and Edward III, which with some minor deviation is very, very similar to yours now that I look at it. So garbage tier Shakespeare, I would say. You know, it's where do we, just how far down, where exactly do we place Timon of Athens versus Pericles, Prince of Tyre in the the negative rankings, I think? Just if you hate it, you hate it, you know, at a certain level. It's... um, all of these plays, in my view, deserve to be thrown across the room with great force at various points, or just like put down because they were boring. However, that middle tier, there's a lot of good stuff in there, I have to say, in general. And there's a lot of stuff looking at this list that I probably would rank higher on sort of second thought. You know, there's some real there's some real value picks in here that could be bumped up considerably as the project has has wrapped up. Well, let, let's let's start with that, Will. So, in terms of worst mistakes that we've made, I think what what do you think looking at your list is a play that you ranked significantly too low or just too low in general but but i think like what what leaps out at you as one that was underranked in the initial passing for you let's see i think uh titus andronicus oddly enough i think suffered by being one of our earlier reads and i put that you know just above my bottom 5 but in retrospect i think that play is actually pretty entertaining and pretty funny in a sort of dark way i'm not sure how much of that is kind of a modernist uh you know sensibility creeping in but i think i rated that one way too low that sort of jumps out to me and then there are some others that are sort of in my mid tier that i might bump up but what about you what's sort of on your your low end that you think deserves the sober second thought of the bard flies so when I was, you know, looking over my list, thinking about this, interestingly, a lot of the plays that, that sort of leapt out to me as maybe being ranked too low were actually things that I still had fairly high on my list. So for example, Macbeth at number six, I think easily could have been higher. Th- then again, I I say that, but then I look at the plays I have above it and I'm like, really? Like, would I really put it above any? So like, there's that kind of thing. Much Do About Nothing, similarly pretty high, but one that I think could have been higher. Twelfth Night is really the one that leaps out to me mm. all the way down at 28 as one that probably is too low. And, and I think that goes with, you know, just my general preference for the tragedies and the histories. And, you mm-hmm. know, and, and I don't really necessarily love the comedies as much or think they have as much to say, at least me personally. Mm-hmm. All that being said, the, the one that I actually would choose is Antony and Cleopatra at 15. And mm. and I think the, the thing with that is that to move Antony and Cleopatra higher would require a little bit of a reshuffle of, of my list in that, for instance, I think when I think about Antony and Cleopatra, you know, I think Antony and Cleopatra is better than Merchant of Venice, but probably not as good in, in my preference as Much Do About Nothing, for example. And like, where would it fit with Love's Labor's Lost? I think mm. probably at the end of the day, Antony and Cleopatra belongs above Love's Labor's Lost. So, but, to, you know, to t- sort of move it into the position where I think it probably would need to be, which is kind of bottom of the top 10, mm. would also require shuffling around some of the things that are above it in my list because I do think I would put much ado specifically still above it. So Yeah, yeah, I, I, I see what you mean. I think, you know, in my case I might bump 
a play that I really enjoy that deserves maybe a little bit more uh, love and respect. I actually really enjoyed Henry VI Part One, and that's solidly in my middle tier. Mm-hmm. I would bump that up, you know, a fair amount because looking back on it, I think I probably enjoyed it more than than a bunch of these. You know, it might not cross the Merchant of Venice threshold, but it's definitely higher than than twenty two, which is where it's currently sitting on my on my list. But I like but liked it more than Midsummer Night's Dream. You know, liked it more than Henry the Fourth Part Two. You know, so there's there's things of that nature that pop up. Yeah, and I think I have to say, and, and just echoing something you said a little bit before, right? Is the early plays get a little bit of short shrift? I think because they were so early. You know, they were the first ones we were reading, and I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I've sometimes even thought Taming the Shrew, where I'm like, well, was the Taming the Shrew really as terrible as as we remember it? Being. Yeah, yeah. Which I say, like, there's so much that's objectionable about the play. But actually, like, it's more memorable to me than some of the other plays. That's true. You know? Yeah, um, yeah. And there is something to be said for that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, on that note, what did you rate too high, do you think, in retrospect? I mean, we've sort of covered the low rated, but what do you think you put a little too high on your list? Yeah, so a couple options here. Henry V is one that I considered not because, you know, obviously I am a big fan of that play, but when I look at the list and I see it at number four, I'm not sure if that's the right ranking. Love's Labor's Lost, obviously, is one that we've we've had, we've made a lot of jokes about uh, at number nine for me. Troilus and Cressida is one that I, I wonder if I've placed too high. Coriolanus at 20, also, I'm, I'm not sure about. And of course, Edward III, at the very bottom of the list, uh, one could argue deserves even to be lower. <laughs> it deserves to be taken out of the canon altogether. Yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> deserves to have never been written. But all that being said, I, I think actually the one, interestingly, that I key in on is The Merchant of Venice at number 10. Oh, it's so interesting. And, um, and so my my reasoning for that is, and, and I think The Merchant of Venice, to some degree, is just in general an interesting case study here because... I think it's a play where it's really the character and characterization Mm. of Shylock that is fascinating about the play and really, you know, really makes at least a modern reader or at least me maybe engage with the play so deeply. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, I think within the character of Shylock, we experience a lot of the things that make Shakespeare on the whole, so interesting and fascinating and worthy of engagement. But the play as a whole, I I actually find to be a little bit of a head-scratcher. So Mm. it's, you know, like the plot mechanics are a little bit strange. The the way it resolves is odd. You know, it really feels like the play just wants to end after the trial scene, and then there's an entire additional act to wrap things up that you've kind of forgotten about or don't really think are that important. There's an interesting tension, I think, in the play between a single characteristic that is fascinating and grabs your attention and your interest and the overall unity of the work of art that maybe doesn't work so well. And I think that is one where the specific character is one of the best representations in Shakespeare and yet, or one of the most interesting representations at least in Shakespeare, and yet the play itself, I think, is really hard. Like, it's really hard for me to argue that The Merchant of Venice, in its totality in its unity, is really a superior play to Much Do About Nothing or King Lear or Anthony Cleopatra 
or even Midsummer Night's Dream, which is a play that highly regarded by others, but neither you or I particularly enjoyed. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think there's also something here about judging these works of art by their intention and how much they succeed at the things that they are trying to do as a whole. And you you talked about that in terms of the unity of the play and the sort of coherence artistically of it. In that sense, right, Much Ado About Nothing, on the one hand, is a much lighter play in many respects, but I think it succeeds much more as a comedy, which definitely part of Merchant of Venice is intended to be. And um, Merchant of Venice, the parts that are interesting, as you say, there is interesting social commentary in it, you know, certainly more so than anything in Much Ado About Nothing, for the most part, I would say. But at the same time, it's kind of a sideshow to the broad strokes of the play, which are intended as a sort of, uh, you know, a, a it's not really a problem play per se, but it veers between tragedy, you know, and and comedy, but not in a way that necessarily feels very even. So I, I completely understand on that front. And, and I think just on a, on a basic level, Will, if you told me two good theater companies, one's doing Merchant of Venice, one's doing Much About Nothing, one night only, which one do you want to see? I'm definitely saying I, w- I would rather go see Much Do About Nothing. Now, yeah, obviously yeah. that's, you know, that's not totally dispositive either but I, I do think it's a worthwhile data point at least in this uh yeah in this conversation. yeah no i think that's fair i think that's fair what about you do you have anything that you feel like yeah you too highly? yeah so it's so it's interesting i'm sitting here thinking about it and i have king lear at five and i think king lear is an excellent play i'm sort of torn about it because i actually think structurally it's quite brilliant Um, And it's an amazing piece of storytelling. There's great thematic unity. The reversals are interesting. The characters undergo some fascinating sort of evolutions. I don't know that it just sticks with me as much as some of the others that we've read. You know, I'm not necessarily sure what I'd replace it with. I, I think that, you know, Much Ado About Nothing is one of the comedies I enjoyed more and probably would benefit from being bumped up by comparison. I sort of put it in the category, like, it's better than The Tempest, which I had at 14, but it's sort of in that category of, like, I see why people like it. I even like it quite a bit, and I think it's it's a classic, but I just don't know that it should really be at my number five, looking back over the totality of everything. So that's that's sort of one reaction. And then, yeah, we talked about Midsummer Night's Dream. I, I appreciate it for what it is, but it doesn't really stick with me, you know, compared to even some of my other mid-tier picks, like Love's Labor's Lost. We had, a, we had a much more interesting conversation about that. I mean, hell, even Henry VIII, I feel like I had a more interesting experience reading it, and certainly Henry VI Part One, and those are below Midsummer Night's Dream. You know, I would bump those up. And then, you know, Richard II, I appreciate as a piece of poetry and philosophy and some parts of it are really quite good but i don't know it's at 15 and maybe that's right but i kind of question a little bit whether it should be quite that high up so those are some hard one to judge i i think it's definitely one that i remember (laughs) yes compared to some of the others Uh, but i don't know that i necessarily totally enjoyed it definitely one that was more interesting than enjoyable perhaps yeah, for sure. I mean, it's definitely got a, you know, a philosophic bent. Some of the soliloquies and some of that stuff's really amazingly done. 
But it does have that kind of weird thing where there are almost two endings, right? There's the fall of Richard, and then there's kind of his murder, and there's a gap in between, and it does feel like a prologue for the other plays in that first Henry ad, but it sort of is a... It's operating in a different register, so it's it's hard to sort of place, I think, in comparison to some of its peers, for sure. And one other question in sort of the re-rankings phase of this, Will, which is when you look over your list of MVPs, is there anyone that you feel like you made the wrong pick? You know, I honestly don't really feel like I made any egregiously wrong picks for my MVPs. I mean, one can make alternative cases, but yeah, I don't feel like I blew it. What about you? I have one that I feel is egregious. (laughs) Tell on. (laughs) And that is not going with Iago as the MVP of Othello. Amelia, who was my pick at the time, is a great character and has at least one extremely memorable and remarkable moments. But Othello, you know, sometimes there's just the obvious choice and there's a reason that they're the obvious choice. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think in the case of Othello, that obvious choice is Iago. And it's really, really hard to argue that anyone else is the MVP of the play. As great as some of the other characters are, don't get me wrong. I mean, Othello's a great character. Desdemona's interesting. Amelia's great. But I think Iago is the dominant and driving force of the play. So that's my my one, like, real regret. I, I think there are others that I could quibble over or, or rethink, but that's the one that really leaps out as, as a mistake. Yeah, fair enough. Well, I'm glad you brought up the question of characters because we have some awards we'd like to give out to some of our favorites. And uh, James, maybe we can just alternate rapid fire style. So I'm going to start off by announcing the John Rambo Award for the highest body count. Which character jumped out for you for having the highest body count in the in the plays that we uh, read? So my first instinct was Titus Andronicus as a... In, in fact, there are, there are actually two, I think, options in the play Titus Andronicus. There's Titus himself, and then, of course, there is Aaron the Moor. And, you know, and, and Titus Andronicus is just legendary for the high body count of it. But then as I thought more about it, I realized that there is actually another answer that it's hard to dispute, and that is Richard III. Now, definitely benefits. There's a little, a little bit of a longevity bias to Richard III in that he appears in three plays and is a murderous bastard in all three of them. But y- you know what? That's the way the cookie crumbled. And uh, so I, I give the John Rambo Award to Richard III. Are you in agreement on that? I agree with Richard III. I will say there is a dark horse pick here, and it is off-screen deaths. But Henry V does massacre all of those captured French prisoners. Now, it's out of military necessity, to be clear, but he does massacre them nonetheless. So Henry V is a dark horse pick, but I think the answer is Richard III. All right, agreed. Then related, or semi-related to the John Rambo Award, our next award is the Award for the Most Diabolical Villain. Will, who takes this one away for you? Aaron the Moore actually really does. I, I referred to him as a mustache twirling villain. I mean, this is the type of guy that like would be tying young women to railroad tracks so that they could be rescued by the Canadian Mounties or the cowboy or whomever. He's just so evil and so over the top, and I kind of love it. 
What about you? This was an interesting one for me because I think there is a number of interpretations for what exactly we mean by this. Like, is it the best villain? Is it the villain who scares us the most? Is it the villain who kills the most people? Is it the person whose actions result in the worst outcome? You know, there, there's a couple different ways you yeah. could parse it that might it, it go in different directions. I, I definitely had Aaron the Moore on my list as well. I ultimately went with Iago for this mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. You know, Iago is a more devious presence, I think. You know, he's he's actually the villain in the sense of someone who is scheming and pulling, putting his schemes into action and having those schemes be effective. I did want to call out a couple other possibilities. I mean, Shylock, definitely a possibility. Mm-hmm. Cardinal Pandolf in King John was oh, yeah. considered. Yeah, for sure. And also Angelo in Measure for Measure. Like that, That's sort of what I mean by the different valences of it. I mean, Angelo is sort of like corrupt bureaucrat type. Yes, villain. yes, So definitely. definitely not mustache twirling in the same way. But, you know, definitely a, a character very, very corrupt and, and tyrannical and harmful. As well as uh, Richard III, of course, is, is an option here. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think like this sort of category does belong to a certain. There has to be a, a certain level of intelligence behind this kind of villain that we're describing, because you could pick other characters that are brutish or kill a lot of people or so forth. But there's there's something a lot scarier about some of these characters that are able to achieve their ends through more devious means, and you see their plots in action, and you come to kind of hate them all the more because of that, because they're not just um, you know they they have subtlety. Uh, and a degree of sinister manipulation. So I, I definitely think that this category belongs to people in that category, for sure. I did want to do a little shout-out to uh, Brutus for the worst villain in Shakespeare. <laughs> you, you know, some might disagree with me if he's a villain at all, and arguably he's not intended as a villain. Nonetheless, what a weenie. Y- you know, just uh, nothing serious about him. <laughs> he's, a, he's a tragic hero, James. He's a tragic hero whose behavior results in disaster. Maybe he's the um, worst hero then. Maybe he's not the worst villain. Maybe he's the he, worst hero. That, that may be true. So next category for you, this is the Giga Chad Award for the most ridiculous game-spitting bro in the Shakespeare universe. James, who do you nominate for this? This one, once I started thinking about it, well, there are so many deserving candidates for this award. Let me just read you my short list here. A short list that could easily be longer. Cloten <laughs> from Cymbeline. Troilus from Troilus and Cressida. Proteus from The Two Gentlemen of Verona. Armado from Love's Labor's Lost. And frankly, Will, Armado was just the most Giga Chad of all the Giga Chads in <laughs> Love's Labor's Lost. But really, like, the whole play is just a festival of Giga Chads. <laughs> Bertram from All's Well That Ends Well. Richard III himself spits a lot of game in the play Richard III. Henry V, as we know, there's a whole scene that's just dedicated to him being the... Wooing. You know, wooing the princess. Both Lucentio and Petruchio in The Taming of the Shrew spit a lot of game. And of course, how could we mention the GigaChat Award without talking about our friend Falstaff? Of course. From the Henry IV plays. So we have a lot of options for this one my final choice here is armado from love's labor's lost who is just the most over-the-top self-aggrandizing malapropism spewing 
unself-reflective and unself-aware Giga Chad of them all, in my opinion. What, what do you think? Oh, man. I mean, so Don Armato is at the top of my short list as well. I would say that I'll, I'll make a modest plea for, for Falstaff, simply because we get to watch him across three plays as a ridiculous human. There's a little bit too much pathos in Falstaff to be true Giga Chad material. This was my exact—this was the, the very reason that I held back from— I mean, well. Don Armato is truly ridiculous in a way that is um, deeply appreciated and deserves special consideration. So perhaps by the terms of this this award, uh, which I crafted for the purposes of this episode, Don Armato might meet the bill. But Falstaff is pretty ridiculous, and he does apparently have a certain weird charisma that tends to to win the ladies over. But I guess Don Armato might be might be the ultimate pick there. I mean, Henry V and Richard III, though, I mean, they're laying the woo on women whose relatives they've just murdered, and they are not unsuccessful. It James. takes a lot of confidence to pull that It takes a move. lot of confidence. That's a real—there's some strong negging. There's some strong wooing. There's some peacocking, to use all of the terms in the pickup artist universe that uh, we've unfortunately learned over the years uh, due to one of our college roommates who was into that subculture. Not really into it successfully, I might add, which you know maybe tells you something about the disgusting world of pickup artists. Regardless, I think Don Armato is probably the right pick. Moving on, Will, another category that I think is actually, once you start thinking about it, full of possibilities— Who's your choice for the Dr. Watson Award for the best wingman? So many, many good choices here. I think ultimately, in terms of a character who is a friend to the main character of the play, a faithful friend, uh, one who really does seem to try and take their best interests at heart, I would have to go with Horatio from Hamlet. Just a generally solid bro. Not able to avert disaster, but uh, Hamlet was going to self-destruct in some spectacular way and take a few people with him, and we knew this. So I've got to say Horatio, a stalwart presence in that play, and um, somebody who's quite enjoyable to watch as the straight man to Hamlet's uh, wild main character. What about you, best wingman? So I have a couple people I want to shout out here, because I I do think there's a number of people worthy of, of mention. Falstaff made my list. Horatio also did make my list, Will. Both the Dromeos from the Comedy of Errors <laughs> are worthy of mention. Petruchio. <laughs> like, let's not sleep on Petruchio for this award. Literally gets dragooned. The whole plot of Taming the True revolves around Petruchio being willing to be a great wingman. To Lucentio. Paulina, in a way, is a great wingman, if, if we're not gendering it in the same way. Uh, true, Paulina from true. The Winter's Tale. Baroon, of course, in Love's Labor's Lost, is a great wingman to the king. Benedict in Much Do About Nothing is true. A true, great that's a very good wingman one. To, and a very um, contemporary, contemporary archetype there. To, who, who is the uh, what's what's the name of the other character in Much Do About Nothing? Well, I can't remember. And then, of course, there's also lest we forget, Will Crab the dog from Oh yeah, the Two Gentlemen of Verona, also has a little bit of a case for the best wingman. However, all that being said, to me, there's only one real choice for this award, and that is Antonio from Mm. The Merchant of Venice. Literally puts his life on the line to enable Bassanio to woo Portia. God, There's not much more a wingman can do 
then offer a pound of their own flesh so that your bro can go wooing. Yes, that is uh, that is true. That is a true a true wingman and a true bro indeed. So I'm you know I'm going for Antonio for this award. Our next award, Will, that I'm, I'm interested to hear your take on, your Freudian slip is showing award for the worst parent. <laughs> So many, many candidates in this one, James, but I think I would have to go with King Lear for setting up the most predictably disastrous will in the history of probate court ever and setting his children against one another while going off and and leaving the kingdom to rack and ruin. And then, you know, basically putting himself in the position where the only daughter that loves him is totally screwed. But there are many, many different candidates for this one, for sure. I just uh, find Lear to be the most compelling of those choices, letting the kingdom and his family go to rack and ruin. What about you, James? Lear is my choice as well. I do want to spare a word for Volumnia in Coriolanus. Yeah. Who uh, essentially emasculates her son and drives him to turn on his country and then to once again turn code. I mean, just there's a lot of weird Freudian stuff going on in that relationship. And it seems pretty clear that most of the issues that Coriolanus has derive from his crazy, unhealthy relationship with his mother. So... That's my choice. Yeah, very, very good. Very good. Uh, so next up, we have the Don Rickles Roastmaster Award for Most Brutal Insults. Uh, James, what do you got for us in this one? couple good options here, though fewer than you would expect. Falstaff is very high on this list, but I think as good as Falstaff is for this category, Will, I think Mercutio is even better. I agree. Mercutio, also a candidate for Best Wingman, but is just relentlessly taking the piss out of his friends and his enemies alike, and it's quite enjoyable to listen to. Um, I did want to mention, uh, Will, speaking of Benvolio, also could be a best wingman candidate. True, true. That's a great point. But yeah, Mercutio, and maybe maybe we should just play the Queen Mab speech again here, Will. I mean, he is just, he he is a great character, uh, actually one of my favorites, looking back on the totality of the, the play. And, you know, I have to say, Romeo and Juliet, solid play. Without Mercutio, I think it lacks a certain lightness that you absolutely need in that one to make it as successful as it is. Well, I think he's very instrumental in establishing the magic of the first three acts of the play, you know, like where we, we talk so much about the fun of, the young men in Romeo and Juliet, <laughs> right? And then them sort of hanging out with each other and kind of broing out in the streets of Verona. But then that's the thing. Like, you kind of have to lose that to move into the tragic part of the play. And and that's where Mercutio has to go. And really, his death, I think, is what provides the turn into that. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And um, it's helpful that in some ways he's the best among them in a certain sense, right? He's certainly the wittiest and the most uh, charismatic, I think, outright of the characters in that coterie of uh, young men. Agreed. Uh, Moving on, Will, the Divine Blight Award for the Worst Monarch. Who do you got? Oh, boy. Uh, So Lear definitely belongs on this list. Cymbeline, also pretty bad, just for not being able to recognize what is obviously a plot against him and engaging in a fruitless war with the Romans that makes basically no sense. But I have to say, I think Henry VI 
is pretty bad. I mean, one could also make an argument for for Richard II being a capricious and foolish king. But honestly, Henry VI, man, this is a guy who is totally unsuited to be king and refuses to actually exercise the royal prerogatives in a way that could make the situation tenable for England. And uh, as a result, things slide to total rack and ruin, civil war, and a succession of very bad men on the throne of England. But who do you blame for that? I think you have to blame Henry VI, who wants to go and play the monk or the shepherd off in the woods and on the the fields and moors rather than actually be king. So I'm going to say Henry VI, because it's often not the, the king that is the most outright villainous or openly making big mistakes. It's the person that doesn't want to do the job at all that can create major problems for you. So Henry VI is my pick. What about you? But Will, he just wants to be a lowly swain. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, Marie Antoinette wanted to play milkmaid, and it didn't turn out well for her either, though I guess she wasn't really running the country per se. But yes, who do you, who do you nominate so for this one? So <laughs> there are a couple others that I think we could throw in the mix here, Will. Obviously Richard III, bad monarch in a different way. The King of France in Henry V, Deserves not, uh, you know, not the main character, but, you know, deserves a mention, I think. Saturninus in Titus Andronicus, Claudius in Hamlet, and Mm -hmm. um, very dark horse candidate, but I think worthy of note is the Prince of Verona in Romeo and Juliet, who is apparently just letting these noble families brawl it out on the streets with no consequences. But nonetheless, I agree with you. I think Henry VI is really the far and away. Well, Henry VI and Richard II, I should say, are the two who really dominate this conversation. And Mm. I I ultimately agree with you that it's Henry VI, but I did want to have a little sidebar here. Why Henry VI and not Richard II? Because I agree with you, but I'm not sure that I could totally articulate why. Well, I think Richard II, his failures are being hard but brittle, Basically, he asserts divine right, but doesn't have really the political skill to cultivate his own constituencies. He's sort of riding on philosophy and precedent in a vaporous and not particularly realistic way. And that's bad, but it's not for lack of of will, ultimately. It sets up sort of disaster. He's obviously capricious and is sort of rewarding his friends and punishing his enemies in ways that don't ultimately help him out in the long run. But at least he's showing up to play the game a little bit. He at least understands that to be king is to have to make difficult decisions, Mm -hmm. even if he makes those decisions badly. Henry VI is somebody that essentially refuses to make choices, or to the extent that he does, he's kind of the pawn of others throughout. Richard II at least takes ownership of his own destiny. That's my view of the situation there. That seems pretty reasonable. I I think I'm inclined to agree. He doesn't abdicate, right? The the problem with Henry VI is the abdication of authority. And I don't mean abdication in the literal sense. Obviously, Henry VI does not abdicate, and probably things would have been better if he had. But it, it is the, the total lack of a center, whereas with, with Richard II, and, and I think maybe we see this in the way that the reigns play out, right? Richard II's failures do not result in a bloody civil war in the same way, right? He is overthrown, but it's almost like a technical, like he loses the support. Henry IV comes in, is able to build the body of support necessary to overthrow him. 
but it really only tips over once there is one challenger who's able to affect that change. Whereas with Henry VI, the total lack of a center allows for these different factions to build and then to compete. And ultimately, you know, there's, there's not two factions in the Wars of the Roses as, as Shakespeare portrays it, right? I mean, it, it almost feels like there's three or four who are aligned right. in different ways at different times. Well, there's chaos from below as sort of the common man tries to assert himself amid the warring nobles. You have everything from the Jackade Rebellion, which is partially kind of a false flag thing by the Yorkists, if I recall correctly. But you also just have those horrific scenes in Henry VI, Part Three, I believe, where you have the father coming across the son that was slain and the son coming across the father that he killed in battle. You know, you right. just have a real breakdown of order in ways that redound to everyone being in terrible shape. I mean, in some respects, right, Richard III, he's killing all of these nobles. And yes, obviously war comes as a result of this. But you really do have this sense, at least in that play, and just in Richard III, that this is a guy who's settling scores within what is essentially a feud among the nobles. Yeah. Whereas Henry VI, I mean, he's presiding over just a rolling, chaotic civil war that is just brutal and involves just Yeah, a total breakdown of order. I mean, I have to say, Claudius doesn't seem that bad. You know, if you remove Hamlet from the equation, maybe Denmark would have been okay, you know, by comparison to some of these other guys. So here's the, the corresponding award, James, which is We Stan a King Award for the best monarch in Shakespeare. Who do you nominate for this one? So, look, I think we're going to agree there's only one real choice here, Will, but a couple people that are worthy of mention. Theseus in Athens gets a couple of plays and, and you know, seems to be generally doing okay. Henry IV, actually, like, it's interesting. Henry IV is portrayed... Not super positively, I would say, as like a human being, but hard to argue with the result, which is that he dies sick in bed after a relatively long reign, you know, maintains order, puts down the rebellions. Pretty successful overall, I think. Mm -hmm. Edward III, of course, hard to, you know, the play is terrible, so we, you know, we don't talk that much about him, but definitely belongs on this list as far as, you know, military hero, unites the nation, all that kind of stuff. I have Aufidius here, the king of the Goths in Coriolanus. I think that's very debatable, but just wanted to put that name out there. Edward IV, also a possibility. We don't really get much of a glimpse of his actual reign. I think the only thing Shakespeare's really that interested in with him is kind of as the bridge between Henry VI and Richard III. But overall, we know in history, at least, was was a pretty decent monarch. Henry VIII also I think comes off pretty well in Shakespeare's treatment, Mm -hmm. at least as far as being someone who is like in control, guiding events. You know, there's some injustices that happen, but you sort of get the impression that it's all in service of the greater good in some sense from Shakespeare's perspective. Mm. So those are a couple possibilities. Before we get to the, the natural and I think only real option, there's one person that I want to point out as a potentially legitimate challenger, Will, which is Duke Vincentio. Mm. in Measure for Measure, sneakily maybe the most overall positive portrayal. You know, I think with Vincentio, he obviously is choosing some bad agents, some evil counselors, as the media would say. 
nonetheless, you know, goes into hiding, is sort of evaluating the performance, removes them, comes in, justice is restored. I, I think it's a pretty positive portrayal. Yeah. No, All I, that I'd being said, that. well, only one real choice here, just for how far and away the best he is, and that is, of course, Henry V. I think we can have a lot of conversations and interesting conversations about the justification of the war in France. There's some extra textual conversations about Henry V. Nonetheless, both in history and in the play, I think the record is clear. This was a very strong monarch, very successful monarch, militarily good administrator, unfortunately died young and therefore didn't secure the succession as well as one expect that he would have if he had lived longer. But I would say all in all, you know, as you and I discussed in our episode on the play Henry V, probably the best we could hope for. I think the answer is Henry V. I mean, there's many character flaws and poor decisions at various points. But the main thing that you can hold against him is um, the succession question, and he doesn't quite stick the landing and having a a seamless handoff to a well-prepared son. But you can't fully blame him for that, after all. So uh, I suppose I would say Henry V is the right answer here, though I think you've laid out some other strong contenders, too. Next category, the kind of gal you bring home to mom award for the most independent female character. Oh, man. So there are some good choices here. I think if you, uh, Portia, great choice. Clearly somebody who will uh, go to bat for you in a court of law in disguise if you really, really need uh, a counselor and you're accused of of something that's going to really put you on the line. Beatrice, quick repartee, witty, enjoyable, uh, looks out for her friends. Rosalind, another great pick, independent, thoughtful, adventurous. And then Dark Horse pick, Lady Macbeth. Lady Macbeth, looking out for your professional development, uh, sort of encouraging you to to self-actualize and become the king that you always were meant to be. So there's a lot of good choices here. I think I'm going to lean on Beatrice for the woman in Shakespeare I would most prefer to be in a relationship with. And that may be just because she's also the most normal, perhaps, if such a thing could be said, of most of the women in Shakespeare while also being highly intelligent and amusing. So uh, Beatrice is my pick. What about you, James? Beatrice was my initial thought. A couple others just I want to throw out there are Isabella from Measure for Measure, uh, Paulina from The Winter's Tale, and Helena from All's Well That Ends Well. Helena, not my favorite for sure, but worthy of mention. I think Isabella, in terms of good person and, you know, the context of this question, you know, someone who is interested in her independence is an obvious possibility. My favorite female character is Beatrice, I would say. Cleopatra also, but not Cleopatra I don't think really fits within the context of this question. Uh, Cleopatra will also one maybe we should have thought of in the uh, the monarch categories, side note. But regardless... All that being said, by the wording of this question, I actually am going to go with the Princess of France from Love's Labor's Lost. Great character overall, loves giving shit to the men and to King Ferdinand in that play. Obviously, she is a high-powered woman. She's there negotiating on behalf of the king. So she's a woman in, in high places and ultimately does end up, you know, departing and, and you know, doesn't end up paired off with... Ferdinand. You know, there's love there and there's the possibility that something could happen, but we're talking about the most independent female character here. And I think she is someone who clearly is going to take care of what she needs to take care of for herself before she decides whether or not she's going to marry the King of Navarre. So that's my (laughs) thing. 
Very good. Very good. And uh, last category, Will, the With Friends Like These Award for the character you would least like to hang out with. Uh, Cloten. He's just an awful person. He's crude. He's stupid. He's brutish. He would be a rapist if he wasn't in uh, the position to be beheaded by the Huntsman's sons. Cloten's just an outright unpleasant character, and it's great when he uh, gets his comeuppance. What about you? Cloten was also my choice. I did have... (laughs) That said, Will, there is a veritable rogues gallery of possibilities here. (laughs) Interestingly, like, and I think there is also an interesting thing here where there are people who aren't so obviously objectionable in the way that Cloten is, who nonetheless would really not be fun to hang out with. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, I think both Falstaff and Hotspur from Henry IV One would be yeah. just insufferable, insufferable to be around for very different reasons. Falstaff is the kind of guy who'd be like, wow, he's really fun to hang out with, but also I don't trust him at all, and he's going to throw me over for a capon <laughs> <laughs> the moment he has the opportunity to. Hotspur seems like a guy who's just off in his own world. He's doing his military thing. And if you're not on the page with that and you're not doing exactly what he tells you, he's going to insult you. He's going to browbeat you. Hotspur's the type of guy who's going to pick a fight at a bar and insist that you back him up, even though he started it and it's totally his fault. Yes. And suddenly you're pulled into this obnoxious guy's you know, macho thing that's totally about his own ego and has nothing to do with you. And nonetheless, if you don't back him up, he's probably going to uh, do something horrible to you in response. But even leaving aside the martial obsession that Hotspur has, I think actually the thing that puts him for me into this category is, you remember the whole thing with the map and dividing up the territory? Yeah, that's right. And Hotspur's Mm -hmm. thing about, I will dispute over the head of a pin. Yes. That's not the exact quote, but he's the kind of guy who's going to just try to wear you down on every single detail. Yeah, Every there's no there's no give and it's take. Always gonna, it's got to be his way. There's never going to be a thing of like, okay, like we can make this work for everyone. That's not Hotspur. Yeah, definitely. And and there's an aspect of that which is like litigious in this way where it's not ever about... There are some characters you get the sense that it's all about the principle of the thing. I mean, Richard II is sort of the great example. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's true for Hotspur. But you also get the sense he's just kind of a tangentious guy who sees any opportunity where he can make a claim... As an opportunity to assert himself and assert dominance or primacy over others. And that's just a pretty antithetical, I think, to friendship at the end of the day, where you're just constantly challenging other people's premises all of the time. You can never sort of take a back seat or take it down a notch. You can see it in the scenes with his wife, too. I mean, he's just a completely tedious... He's both sort of an entertaining character to watch because you know he's going to set a whole bunch of stuff in motion, but he's completely tedious, on the other hand, to actually deal with on a human level. Yeah. You know, his wife is like, you don't want to stay and spend the night with me? And the guy's like, well, no, no, I, I I've got to go. Fight, I, I've got to go war to fight woman, like whatever. You know, and, and fighting over every little uh, slight, even when it's kind of like, you know, discretion is sometimes the better part of yeah. valor. Um, so I think, yeah, I can understand that. You know, similarly, uh, well, like Brutus, another character that I think would be horrible to hang out with, like so sanctimonious. And Hamlet, also a character, like gr- amazing character. But I-, I mean, God bless Horatio for being able to put up with that guy. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I think most of the characters in um, <laughs> certainly the Triumvirate and Caesar, I have to say, none of those characters would be especially yeah 
fun to be friends with. And also, Will, almost every character in the play King Lear would not be fun to hang out with. Yeah. Uh, oh, for, Whether it's a- Cordelia or Lear or Goneril and Regan or yep. Edmund, I, I, it just, just, God, get me as far away as possible. It's guys. a bad even even the fool would be a bit much, I yeah. have to say. Uh, yeah, for sure. I do think that Cloten, for all the reasons you stated, is the obvious choice here. So those are our awards here. The other thing, before we get to sort of our final reflections, Will, Shakespeare adaptations. Obviously, we covered a few different takes on Shakespeare over the course of the pod. Of course, this being Shakespeare, there are countless others. So I just wanted to ask you, what of the stuff that we talked about, and I would include within the stuff that we talked about the, the, the various, like, you know, there's, of course, the minisodes that we did on Ran and on Throne of Blood and on The Merchant of Venice with Pacino. You know, there are those ones, but then there are also the things that we mentioned in the context, right? We talked about 10 Things I Hate About You. We talked a little bit on the Verdi operas in, in Measure for <laughs> Measure, or sorry, in, uh, in The Merry Wives of Windsor. So... There are the things that we touched on, and then there's also, is there anything that we never talked about that you really like? Yeah, so uh, just quickly, I think that the one that we did talk about that I quite liked and left the strongest impression was Ron by Kurosawa. That was just a visually uh, incredible film, I think is a, a very good adaptation of Lear in terms of the storytelling, uh, obviously dispensing with Shakespeare's language, but I, I thought it was a really masterful adaptation and left a huge impression on me just because of the spectacle and the real artistry of the filmmaking and, and acting. Favorite of what we didn't get to? I mean, that's such a hard question to answer. There are many, many things that I wish that we had had time to get into. Did we do Romeo and Juliet by Boz Lerman? We did not. That also made my list here. That is actually, I watched it again recently, and it is actually... A terrific adaptation, in my opinion. It is a. I, I was thinking about that recently, just in the context of like our interpretation of the play as being a sort of hormonal teenagers in love, the disasters that ensue. I think you know when it came out, it was such a stylish film, and then you know Leo and Claire Danes were in it, and then you know I think the critical reputation curdled against it for a while. And now, having watched it not all that long ago, but not having discussed it with you, I feel like it is actually probably a good approximation of where Shakespeare might have landed if he were a contemporary filmmaker interested in working in this space that exists with it now. I mean, it's it's good. It's it's interesting. It's a distinctive take on the material. So yeah, I throw out that out there. And then in terms of things that we didn't get to that I haven't seen, but I really want to see, Chimes at Midnight, the Orson Welles sort of Falstaff film, and My Own Private Idaho, which is the Henry IV, Keanu Reeves, River Phoenix, where there are street hustlers in the Pacific Northwest. I really uh, want to watch that as well. Those are the ones that jump out to me. But um, what about you? I'm interested you brought up My Own Private Idaho, Will, because I literally just watched that. I don't remember if we texted about it, but I watched it pretty recently. And it's it's interesting. It's, it's a weird mashup. You know, it's not all Henry IV. It's kind of a mashup of Henry IV with the Keanu Reeves storyline and then this other stuff that's going on with the River Phoenix character. Very interesting film, I have to say. Of the stuff that we watched, I agree with you, Ron was just a remarkable, remarkable film. And I really enjoyed it. I did want to do a shout out to Game of Thrones, which we never talked about explicitly mm. in like this level of depth, but actually... Yeah both as the book series and at least the first couple 
seasons of the TV show essentially does seem to be an adaptation of the Henry VI plays with some other elements thrown in from other places. Mm. And of course, I think one aspect of our conversations about Shakespeare has been to talk about the way that these ideas and situations redound to the present and how actually relatable they are as remote as they can seem to us. And I think Game of Thrones really expressed that. Like that is such a phenomenon. Like that Mm -hmm. show was such a big phenomenon. The books are such huge sellers. And I think that's just kind of reflective of how much resonance there is within the way that Shakespeare presents these things. In terms of things we didn't talk about, one, we never talked about The Lion King, Will. (laughs) True, true. I think it belongs in the conversation with 10 Things I Hate About You as like just really great adaptations of Shakespeare that are not explicitly Shakespeare. We never talked about the Branagh Henry V, which is a really, really enjoyable movie. You already mentioned the Bosler and Roman Juliet. The old Julius Caesar with Brando, I think you and I both watched it yeah. in the course of doing the podcast, but never talked yeah. about it on the podcast. I had seen it in high school, I think before I really knew anything about movies or about Shakespeare. And I have to say, going back and watching it again, it really holds up. I think the guy who plays Caesar is not great, but James Mason as Brutus, Gilgood as Cassius, and especially Brando as Mark Antony. I mean, watching the Mark Antony Friends, Romans, Countrymen speech Oh, it's amazing. Is it's amazing. truly, like... It so, so perfectly encapsulates what's going on in that scene with that character. And I think the contrast between his performance and the Mason performance is, is really terrific. One very contemporary shout-out that I wanted to make that is, I would say, an unintentional takeoff of Shakespeare, Will, is I don't know if you've seen the film Triangle of Sadness. No, year, I haven't. Which is in a little bit in the awards conversation right now. It, in a way, feels like a spiritual take on The Tempest. And I won't say more about it than that. Absolutely a film I would recommend to everyone. It's my favorite movie of the year. Hmm. Strong Tempest vibes in that movie. But I, I do agree with you in terms of the things that we watch specifically for the pod. Ron is just a remarkable, remarkable film. And, and a cinematic classic apart from the King Lear connection. And I think particularly once you are thinking of the King Lear connection is just a really, really great film. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that brings us to the end of, of the awards. I do think before we go, this has been a long journey, you know, yes. we, we were talking about at the beginning of, of this episode, we started this project late 2019. I think it was around Labor Day of 2019 that we conceived had our first of conversations it. about it at yeah. your place on the Cape, started reading, hit the pandemic Shakespeare was kind of our companion throughout that whole period of time. And now, you know, now we're kind of coming out of it. And it seems appropriate that that's also the moment that we're finishing Shakespeare. But and I I know we talked a little bit about this, too, in our sort of in our halfway episode. But now with the benefit of the full breadth of it, do you have any final reflections? And, And maybe I would ask as well, like, and this relates back to the rankings. You know, we both had Hamlet as number one. But I personally would say, I think Hamlet is the greatest play, but not necessarily the play that I enjoyed the most. And, and so I was wondering, mm. is there any play in particular that you would point out as like the one that you enjoyed the most, even though it's not number one for you in terms of your thoughts about the great? Sorry, that this is a multi-pronged question. So I feel like I just threw a lot at you, but... No, 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 that's fair enough. In terms of, um, yeah, I mean, Hamlet's obviously, for both of us, was, was the greatest achievement of Shakespeare. 
and I think parts of it are it's still a fun and incredibly engaging read. But I think um, I really enjoyed Julius Caesar quite a bit, and sort of encountering it in this context made me appreciate it all the more especially because I hadn't really spent time with it. I think I, I hadn't really read it before this play. I'd read some of the, the pieces, but it left both a strong impression and I just found it to be a really compelling, fun read. And so so that one sort of stands out to me. I mean, there's so many others that I encountered that blew me away. And I think um, the first Henry ad, I, other than Richard III, I hadn't really read at all. And that really, I found to be quite striking and enjoyable too. And that surprised me how much I liked the Henry VI plays and then to cap it with Richard III, which is one of my favorites. So those are the sort of contenders that I would put down. Uh, what about you on that front for plays that you consider I, to be most fun? I mean, I, I definitely agree with you. I mean, Henry IV one in particular is a play that's, that's my number two overall, which you'd ask me going into this. You know, look at the list. What, what do you think is going to be your top five? I don't think Henry IV Part One would have cracked my notice as something that I thought was going to be in my top five. Mm. Love's Labor's Lost, obviously, is a play that I have a lot of affection for and that really made an impression on me. Kind of hard to say in retrospect if that's because that play kind of just hit me at the right moment and the right way. And I was so not expecting to have that kind of reaction to that play. So, you know, there's always the situations or the circumstances in which you read something and how it grabs you, and sometimes it's just the right thing at the right moment. Anson Cleopatra, you know, a play that I really enjoyed. Much about nothing, an incredibly just entertaining play. And I agree with you about Julius Caesar as well. I think Julius Caesar, very modern-feeling kind of political thriller type. All that being said... I would say Othello is probably the play that I enjoyed the most, or it's the one that has stuck with me as having enjoyed the most, at mm. least. You know, and, and I think some of that is about the, about the presentation and the emotions. Like, it is kind of a melodrama, in a way. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the emotions are so big, and it's so essential, you know, jealousy, lust, love. It's about these, like, very elemental human the needs of the body and the need for love and, and insecurity. You know, it's sort of getting into these, despite being melodramatic in that way, it's melodramatic because it's keying in on very essential feelings, I think. Mm. And it's so intense, you know, it's just so refined in how it presents those things. And so that sort of sets up for me, like, well, what's the difference between that and Hamlet? And like, why is that Hamlet becomes, like, to me, it's it's not even really that debatable, you know Hamlet is number one or not and I guess you know you could argue that it's because we've all heard so much about Hamlet over the years and and whatnot and and maybe yes maybe we're taking some of that to it and giving it too much credit because we've heard so much about it I really don't think that's the case and I think you know when I think about that Hamlet and Othello dichotomy and I think you could say this about when you're talking about Othello you could say that with a bunch of the plays that are maybe more entertaining definitely shorter than Hamlet right but what's happening in Hamlet is I think it is a very entertaining play. It's very watchable. It's very readable, despite being so long. By the way, Will, on the Hamlet note, we should have mentioned Rosencrantz and Guildenstern in the, oh, yeah, worst, for sure. the worst friend category, but um, that's a little aside. What I find with Hamlet is that it is dramatic and intense and entertaining in that way while engaging very deeply on very deep questions Mm -hmm. you know like hamlet is really about the stuff of life 
And like those fundamental questions about who are we? What are we doing here? What does it all mean? What happens after we die? And there's a pathos to it, I think, in in asking those questions. And also, I, I mean, there's probably nothing, Will, that sticks out to me more in all of Shakespeare than the scene where Osric comes and Hamlet and Horatio are talking and it's the presentation of the duel with Laertes to Hamlet. And Hamlet accepts and Horatio says, bro, like, you're going to lose. You know, like, you're, you're not going to win this fight. And Hamlet basically, not quite in so many words, but basically says, I'm ready to die. Yeah, yeah. And the entire exactly. play has been, ultimately, you realize, has been about him coming, preparing to, terms to die. That. And coming to terms with essentially the fact that what's important is not the meaning of his life in some macro sense, but his preparedness for the end of his life mm-hmm. in fulfillment of his mission. Now, like we can talk about is revenging his father, like the worthy mission. And I think that's almost a little too 21st century, a conversation and gets right, away right. from the essential meaning of, of the play. So sorry, that's my long winded explanation for why ultimately I think it has to be Hamlet. Yeah, I mean, I think the psychological depth of Hamlet and the dealing with profound questions of existence sort of prime it for the modern sensibility, right? I think some of these other plays might resonate or might have been seen as greater at different points in history and depending on what people's concerns were. There's a certain level of deep psychological you know, it's it almost anticipates all of the, the stuff that not just sort of the great moral philosophers would go on to write about and then had been writing about, but also Freud and Jung and all of these deep penetrating efforts at, at analyzing the human condition through psychology and, and family and so forth. Like all of that stuff gets anticipated by Shakespeare here and crystallized in ways that are packaged for our understanding in a dramatic form and that's really quite an achievement because i don't think you see quite that level of interiority as consistently with any other character across shakespeare you get moments of it and glimpses of it but in terms of really giving you the inside of a a character's thoughts and how they relate to the world and situations in our own lives that may not be as dramatic as avenging your father for being poisoned are certainly relevant to, to every person. And it's just a question of presenting that material in a way that is accessible and able to be absorbed. I think the, the themes in Hamlet are powerful and um, you know as close to universal as you could probably get at this stage in literature. So yeah, completely agree on that front with you. And Will, before we, uh, before we bid farewell to Shakespeare, any final takeaways or, or thoughts on this experience? Well, I think it's been a fantastic experience. I have profited a great deal from having this sustained project, partially because I really have come to appreciate Shakespeare in his totality more than I did before. I mean, obviously, I would have ranked him as one of the greatest writers of all time and so forth, but I feel like I can say it with a great deal more authority. And in spite of some of the duds that we encountered along the way, I can appreciate his growth as an artist. It's changed the way that I think about other types of storytelling and, and fiction and, and literature and even history to a certain extent. And so I've really appreciated that first and foremost. And it's something that I think we knew was going to happen at the beginning of this project, but but it really has come to fruition. 
Second, I would just say it's been fun to do this with you and have it as a cornerstone of our conversations over the past couple of years. And I would just say, I know that people do book clubs, people do all sorts of things that keep you intellectually stimulated and give you things to talk about, but there really is no replacement for a disciplined attempt to read and think and talk about something with somebody else. It doesn't have to be on a podcast, but this kind of level of focus has been really delightful and um, we hope for it to continue in different forms as we look to the future with Bard Flies. But I, I really encourage people to undertake this type of work, not necessarily Shakespeare, but try and be a completist about something and try and do it with somebody else in a way that you can talk and have interesting conversations and expand your horizons. Those are things that I really have taken to heart again and again over the course of this, course of this project. And people used to do more of this, and Shakespeare used to be more of a, a thing that people would read for pleasure, not just go see in the theater. And I think people would benefit from that, whether it's Shakespeare or other authors that are sort of canonical in various ways. Uh, I think it really does expand your, your horizons artistically when you think about the rest of the world, and certainly just in how you come to judge and assess the work that great writers produce and you realize that they're human and admire their work in spite of their flaws and because of their great triumphs. Those are my main takeaways. I have to agree with that. And I think I just want to add one thing that I've noticed about our conversations and just the process of our doing this, you know, every couple of weeks or month or, or, you know, with whatever different frequency we've done it at different times is... I mean, I can definitely say this for myself, and, and I think you probably w will agree with what I'm about to say, which is that I've definitely gotten so much more out of this process because of the podcast and because of knowing that we're going to talk about it and, you know, talking about our different topics, actually going through, like, looking at the quotes. We, we talked, I, I think it was maybe with Henry the Fourth, no, Henry the Sixth, Part Two, I think, was the first time we really talked about this on, on an episode, but... Shakespeare has really rewarded the close reading. Some plays more mm. than others. <laughs> I, think, I think we can yes. agree about that. But, you know, I, I do think that it's something that has been, because we've had to engage with each other about it intellectually, we've read the plays on a deeper level. And I think they've, for the most part, rewarded reading them that way. You know, mm -hmm. you, you just find more in them the more you try to find things. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and that, that's really been, that's really been great. And, and then to your point about it, about being completist about it, I, many of the plays that we've read, I think would be really interesting to read in isolation. I would give a copy of Romeo and Juliet to someone to read casually or a Julius Caesar, right? Like just very enjoyable plays that there is a lot in to engage with. That being said, I do think reading them all and particularly the way that we read them which was chronologically beginning to end, has given a really great sense of the artistic arc of Shakespeare's career. Seeing how they're all in dialogue with each other and how they're changing over time has been a really interesting aspect of it too, right? Seeing how Shakespeare changes from that, you know, so far and no farther mentality of the earlier plays where he's really driving to the most trying to take every situation to the extreme, like really trying to interrogate like what the farthest meaning of something is to the deeper psychological examinations of the middle, the great tragedies, that middle period to the more 
not quite sentimental, but the, you know, the more forgiving, gentler, wiser perspective of the later plays. And I don't say that to say that any of them is right or wrong, better or worse. It's just very interesting to track that transformation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And some of, you know, some of them, it it, it was so interesting, right? Doing Two Noble Kinsmen at the end and reflecting back on Two Gentlemen of Verona, just, I don't know that Two Noble Kinsmen is that much better, ultimately, than Two Gentlemen of Verona. But it's a very different attitude towards it. I just thought that was a really interesting experience. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I would also say... In terms of Shakespeare himself and what's in the plays, I am really, really just struck by the fact that even having gotten to the end of this process, I don't know that I could tell you what Shakespeare's perspective, like what his actual opinion is on a lot of things. Mm -hmm. What's amazing to me, and I think this is something that, you know, maybe we could come up with a couple of the writers that we think we see this in, but... But honestly, like, I don't know that anyone automatically comes to mind that, that I associate this with. That with Shakespeare, it really feels like he's inhabiting these different characters. He's presenting the world as it is and not really tipping the scales ever. Like, he's always giving these characters the strongest version of the perspective. Whereas I feel like we often laud artists for having their unique view of the world that's expressed in their work. With Shakespeare, it, it's kind of the opposite it's like he's just showing very objectively the world and what's in the world that's very interesting i I don't know it's like it's a way to one it's a way of engaging with different ideas and like really challenging yourself but also and i think we talked about this in the halfway episode a little bit too what i've noticed for myself is it, it almost tells you something about yourself because you see the things that you react to in shakespeare and that you respond to like it's so easy to abuse Shakespeare and say that he agrees with you or with your perspective because you are able to find those things in his work that reflect your viewpoint. And yet, you know, and yet the opposite viewpoint is also presented somewhere. So that was, I think, maybe the most remarkable single characteristic about the work Mm. to me is is what I would call like sort of the radical objectivity of it, I guess. Yeah, 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 definitely. And then even beyond that, just what an amazing range of interests and politics, comedy, cognition, psychology, you know, there's just a vast, just a, a humor. There's just a huge range of things that he's covering and covering pretty well. And yes. That's, that's really remarkable. I mean, I do think, you know, if we look at our rankings here, Will, like the guy wrote 39 plays that survive or wrote or contributed to. I guess there's a couple that he didn't write fully. The first 15 plays on, on my list here are, are basically stone cold classics. Yeah, And absolutely. then the next eight to 10 are all really good. Yeah, completely. I mean, I think that that's one of the, that is one of the remarkable, remarkable elements is there are a lot of interesting failures here, but there's a lot of just almost unqualified successes that hold up incredibly well. And I think revisiting those plays in the future, uh, especially the ones that we've deemed worthy, or even just the passages of the ones that were interesting, but maybe didn't fire on all cylinders, that too has merit. And, uh, It's one of the many, many reasons that I'm so glad to have uh, worked on this project over the past three years with you for season one. It's been great. Uh, And I I, I really enjoyed it. And it's been fun to do it with you, Will. And that's our show and our season. Thanks to everyone who went on any of this journey with us. And thanks to Shakespeare for giving us so much to talk about. 
James and I will be taking a break for a little while, but please watch the space for any updates on what's next for Bard Flies. And in the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. If you have any ideas, thoughts, or just want to say hello, please email us at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com or reach out on Twitter to at bardflies. Thanks, and until next time.